Amen. Remain standing as we turn our attention to Matthew 8 and 9. We're not going to read the entire chapters, but it is my intention to give us a cursory overview of this. But I will read chapter 9, beginning at verse 9, and the call of the author who wrote this gospel. Now hear the word. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would attend the preaching of your word. And from this extended passage, we pray you would bring forth your message that your spirit intends for us this morning. And that it would prick our hearts and challenge our minds and that we might rise up and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I know some of you like to take notes, and I am doing something quite different today. So may I encourage you, uh, if you wish, put your pencils and papers down, but pick your Bibles up. And if you want to take notes, you might want to scribble in your Bibles, which is not a sacrilegious thing to do. We're doing something a little different. And rather than me stating my thesis and developing the message, we're going to go right into a discovery process through a little Bible study and allow the thesis to emerge as we make headway. So with no introduction, I'm going to jump right into the passage of Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, and I think it will help us in subsequent weeks as we begin to go through it in more detail, which we, Lord willing, will do. In chapter 8 and 9... We have a total of 10 miraculous works, 10 specific miraculous works, and we'll run through them very briefly. Now, in my Bible, I've actually highlighted and circled and numbered them, uh, so I will direct you to them without going through them all, uh, or at least reading them all. The very first specific miracle we come to is in verse 2, and that was healing of a leper. The next one we come to in this list of ten is down in verse 5, and that is the healing of a servant of a centurion. And then the number third one is healing of Peter's mother-in-law down in verse 14. That's number three. And then number four is over in, uh, down the page at verse 23 when Jesus is with his disciples and he stills the, the wind and the waves when he was with them. Number five, and the last one in chapter eight, is in, begins in verse 28 when Jesus heals two demon-possessed men. Now in chapter nine, he picks up in the sixth miracle and he heals a paralytic man that his friends brought to him. And in chapter nine, in verse 18, we have the seventh specific miracle of healing Jairus' daughter or actually bringing her back to life. We know this was Jairus' daughter by what the synoptics uh, Luke says about this. Now, 
in the middle of that episode, he was interrupted by a woman who was hemorrhaging in verse 20, and that was the eighth miracle. And then he comes back and continues that miracle with, the, uh, with Jairus. And then in the ninth miracle, in chapter 9, verse 27, there's the healing of two blind men. And then the tenth one is beginning at verse 32 with the healing of demon-possessed mute man. There we have ten miracles. Now those are interspersed, or within those ten miracles are interspersed a couple of other little notables. First of all, we have a conversation. In fact, we have two conversations beginning at chapter 8, verse 18, that goes through about 22. Two conversations with two men. One was a scribe and the other was a would-be disciple. The other kind of interlude that we have or insertion here is the passage I just read in the calling of Matthew, the tax collector, the one who actually gave us this gospel. Now, we have parallel accounts in Mark and Luke of all ten of these miracles except for the last two. And I'd like to say something briefly as I'm still beginning to introduce you to some of this content. I want to mention three things about what I just described. Number one, most of the miracles that Matthew mentions here are out of chronological order. Mark and Luke give us the time references and give us these accounts in more of a historical manner in which these things happened. So in comparing these matters with Luke, only the first six miracles, according to Mark and Luke, they put it in order. They completely occur completely out of order in Matthew's gospel. So these things are not in chronological order. The other thing that we should note here, a second point, is that these events in these two chapters are not even in chronological order with the events of Jesus, with the events within the story that is enveloping. Three of these miracles, the healing of the leper and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law and the one who was the paralytic, happened before the Sermon on the Mount. Six of the last seven occur after the kingdom miracles given to us in Matthew 13. Even the call of Matthew that we read in chapter 9, beginning at verse 9, happened before the Sermon on the Mount. Only one of these is actually in chronological order, and that is the healing of the centurion's servant. A third point that we should consider is those two conversations that were inserted by a scribe, one of a scribe and and one by a would-be disciple. These were actually two would-be disciples. One was a scribe and one was called a disciple. Most likely not one of his twelve. There in chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, those conversations took place much, much later in Jesus' ministry. In fact, those two conversations happened on Jesus' final journey down to Jerusalem just shortly before he was crucified. They are way out of place. Well, so what are we to make of all that? Did the Holy Spirit direct Matthew 
to write these things in this order or not? Were these things just haphazard? Did Matthew get it wrong? Or is there some kind of reason for this arrangement, for this order, and even for those insertions in these two particular chapters? Well, if you believe what the Bible itself teaches about inspiration, there's only one right answer. The Spirit of God is the author, and God doesn't make mistakes. The Holy Spirit has a very purpose and a reason why he directed Matthew to group these things together as he did. And it is left for us to enjoy the discovery of that rearrangement. All these things which are bound together out of sequential order here in these two chapters have an intentional reason why they are the way they are. So let's go a little further in our discovery process. First of all, I want you to see how Matthew frames this section of Scripture. And he does so with two bookends that are connected, and we should see these two bookends. It will help us. The first bookend is at the very end of chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. This is right before the Sermon on the Mount, as Matthew puts it together. And it says, And Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. He taught, he preached, and he healed. Now, the very same wording is at the very end of chapter 9, which is our last book in, in chapter 9, verse 35. The Scripture has the same word. Then Jesus went about the cities of the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of sickness and every kind of disease among the people. Those are two bookends that now frames the structure of what Matthew's purpose is, or the Spirit's purpose, that should help us to understand his message. And from those two bookends, we have the main point of Matthew's organization of the material from chapters 5 to chapter 9. So what he's going to do between those two bookends is he's going to now give us examples or samples of Jesus' teaching and his preaching and of his healing. He's sampling us. One of the main strands that provides a sample of his teaching is given to us in Matthew 5 through 7, that which we call the Sermon on the Mount. Another strand that provides samples of his miraculous healings are given to us in chapter 8 and 9 with 10 samples of miracles. So with these five chapters, Matthew is providing samples of Jesus' teaching and Jesus' miracles. That's why those bookends help us to understand what's going on within its boundaries. Now before I go any further, let's now place this in the context of Matthew's main purpose for why he's writing this gospel. Why do we have four gospels? Why do we have four when they're basically telling us 
the life of Jesus? Why couldn't the Spirit have just summed it all up in one? Because there's a purpose. Remember, Matthew is writing to primarily a Jewish audience, unlike Luke, who is writing primarily to a Gentile audience. And he's writing to a Jewish audience to proclaim the coming of the long-awaited messianic king. And the kingdom of God that he would bring in. So he's introducing the kingdom by introducing us to the king who is now here. Chapters 1 and 2 contain those elements of the origins of Jesus. According to what the prophets have said, Jesus' origins are sterling. We there have his genealogy and they are impeccable. We have his pedigree. In chapters 3 and 4, we have his miraculous preparations. From the coming of the forerunner of John the Baptist, which was prophesied even at the end of the close of the Old Testament canon. We have Jesus' baptism and we even have his temptation. So the Father, Son, and even Satan were a part of those personal preparations of Jesus' person for his earthly ministry. In addition to these things, Matthew has provided us some background on where Jesus took up residence, the men he would gather to himself, the kind of ministry he had, all according to what the Old Testament prophets had said. Now in these five chapters, Matthew paints a broad stroke of the kind of teaching and miracles that would happen by this king, this long-awaited Messiah. So when you come through these five chapters, Matthew is driving at a point. And he's driving at a point like this. Have you ever heard anything like this? Have you ever seen anything like this? My brother Jews. So that's how he's framing this section with these bookends. And he's given us a sampling of his teaching. He's given us a sampling of his miracles. So he can put the question, have you ever heard and have you ever seen anything like what you're seeing? Well, the second thing that I want to draw our attention to is throughout the section of these samples of Jesus' teaching and healing, Matthew emphasizes two main characteristics that attend to those samples. The first one is the characteristic of Jesus' authority. Jesus' crown rights as a messianic kingdom were front and center as Matthew is giving us this section of his gospel. Remember the way that Matthew closes the Sermon on the Mount that we considered and read last week in verses 7, 28. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. In fact, the only one of those miracles that is in the chronological order 
is the one that we come down to in the centurion servant. So we hear the people just now ascribing to his teaching with one of great authority. And the very next chronological miracle is the centurion servant. And this centurion, who was a Roman soldier and was a Gentile, he comes and in verse 9 He says to Jesus, for I also am a man under authority. Lord, just speak the word. Here is this Roman centurion who had the authority of the state, empowered him and many men under his authority. And he comes to Jesus acknowledging his authority and says, Lord, I know how this works. I know how this authority thing works, and I know that you have this, so you just speak the word. And Jesus marveled, and he looked around and says, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. His authority again was emphasized in the healing of the paralytic in chapter 9. It was even questioned in verse 6 there, but you, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, there's the word, on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, arise and take up your bed and go to your house. And the people reacted to that as well they should react to that unless Jesus is who he says he is and who Matthew is saying that he is. Authority? To forgive men of their sins. And the people in verse 8 says they marveled at his authority to forgive. Now see, front and center through this entire thing is Jesus' authority as the king to do these things. To say these things with a kind of certainty and authority that he had. And think about the impact of the emphasis of this supernatural authority that Matthew is presenting right before us this morning. You have sampled his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and that teaching was hard-hitting. It was more demanding than anything else you have ever heard. And Jesus threatens us, you, me, with eternal punishment if you do not obey it. And he will be the one to whom we have to give an account on that great day. If you don't do your father's will. And when he's done, he sounds like he's got the authority to say these things. And so where does that lead us? He will demonstrate to us again and again that your impressions of his authority are right. Nobody can do what he does. And nobody can teach the scriptures like he does. What matter of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? If you come out of the Sermon on the Mount and you're crushed down and you're convicted and laid low, the good news is that He also has the authority to forgive your sins. 
And He indeed does that for people. Our problem is not our aging process or all those aches and pains that we get as we're aging. Our problem is not our health issues, our sicknesses, our challenges. Our problem is not our struggling financial situations. Those are small things. They are real, but they are small. Our big problem is our sins. And that's the problem with this entire messed up world. It's sin. And the only answer to it all is someone who has the ability and heaven's authority to come and deal with all those things. And that person is right here. Remember how Matthew ends his gospel? All authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth, Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The point of Jesus' authority is critical to understanding Matthew's gospel. Jesus is the king, not a king. He is the king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of all who lords. That's why He can say to us, don't worry about your earthly needs and your necessities. I know those things. If you but seek the kingdom first in your life, those things will be taken care of. Because I can do it. And I have done it. He can say that with certainty and authority. So the first characteristic that Matthew is emphasizing throughout this, this passage is Jesus' authority. To be able to say these things, to be able to do these things. Another characteristic that he brings out is the faith of the people who responded to him. There are a number of times that you have this wording explicitly pointed out. The centurion in chapter 8, verse 10, who was this Roman Gentile soldier, Jesus says in verse 13, go your way as you have believed, so it will be done. In the episode of calming the storm in chapter 8, verse 26, he rebukes his disciples, why? O you of little faith. You're my Jewish disciples. And you didn't have faith like the Roman centurion. The healing of the paralytic in chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus saw the faith of the friends that brought the paralytic. And then he addresses the paralytic. The woman with the issue of blood in chapter 9, 22. She, he says to this woman, he says, your faith has made you well. The two blind men in chapter 9, verse 28, he says, Do you believe? They said, Lest, Lord, we believe according to your faith. May it be done unto you. And he healed them. Five of those ten miracles explicitly mention faith. Two others imply the faith. One is the leper in chapter 8, verse 2. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's an implicit faith. And in Jairus, who 
came to Jesus believing that Jesus could raise his dead daughter from the dead. We're only left with two others out of that ten, and they were demon-possessed, and I don't think we should expect faith from them. So what we have so far in this discovery process is that Matthew has arranged this material in his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not to give us a chronological account, but for a very different reason. He's grouped these events together to emphasize Jesus' authority as the prophesied king who has now come. So that we can hear his teaching and we can consider his works. And those two main characteristics that undergird this teaching and miracles is his authority to be able to do these things and the faith of the people to believe him for who he is. And now we come to three kinds of people that I believe will begin to emerge the message for us this morning. We come to three kinds of people that Matthew groups together with all these things. And a narrative like this, which is narrative and its story, is quite different than the way Paul writes his epistles, where he says a doctrine, and then he's going to illustrate what he says with his proposition, then he's going to support what he says and explain what he says, and then he's going to apply what he says with something like therefore, and then he's going to give an imperative. But narrative passages like this, the truth is enveloped in story. And it makes its point even in the characters modeling something for us. And the genius of story is that it makes the point without it directly addressing it to you. But we are to watch and we are to learn from the people who responded to what's going on, particularly as Matthew deliberately, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes an emphasis that we should be paying attention to the people and how they responded. First of all, there is a kind of person, or what I say, at least a group of person, or I don't know what you would say, it, but it, it was the crowds. Matthew mentions the crowds often. Back, back in the book in of there, the first book in, in chapter 4, in verse 25, he, he, he brings that to our attention when he, he says, great multitudes followed him. Chapter 5, verse 1, and the multitudes, and seeing the multitudes, he went up to the mountain. The same word is given there in chapter 7, verse 28, when he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, and it says, and when, he, and when it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people ended. But that's the same word as the multitudes, the crowd. In chapter 8, verse 1, And when he came down from the mountain, the great crowds followed him. Chapter 8, verse 18, And when he, Jesus saw the, the multitudes around him. Chapter 9, verse 8, And when the multitudes saw it, Chapter 9, verse 33, multitudes marveled. And then the other book in chapter 9, 36, he saw the multitudes. 
Why all these crowds? Why all this emphasis on showing us about these crowds? Well, what happens in third world countries that don't really have any medical provision and they have very little food? What happens when the the medical truck or missionaries arrive to the little village who is sickly? Or what happens when the truck shows up with all of the free food? Crowds will be gathered around the medical trucks. Crowds will be gathered around the trucks with free food. And crowds follow Jesus because of the free food and the healing and the relief and the stress from disease. And the crowds followed Him because our Lord was ministering to them physically. And that's not a bad thing to do. There are some mission efforts, and we have even been involved in some of those, where the first dealing with people is based on helping them physically by providing medical treatment and help so that there would be an opening to the gospel to these people. I would not support at all any kind of medical missions that is only ministering to the physical needs of people. And that's not what Jesus was doing. But He was ministering to them physically. But the fact is that sometimes all the people see, and that's sometimes what people just approached Jesus for, was for the, the free food and the medical help. And that is certainly most true in our day today. There are crowds who follow Jesus. And less like these crowds who follow Jesus, these crowds would soon walk away from Jesus because of the demands it would place upon their life to be a disciple of Jesus and what it would mean in the change of their lifestyle if they did. It's nothing different today. They simply weren't prepared for that kind of change. And we don't have Jesus walking around in our midst today, with, but we do have the revelation of Jesus, and we, have, we can hear of the same things, and the effect on the people then and the effect on people today are basically the same. In His day, many people saw Him. Today, many people read about Him. In other words, there are vast crowds of people Today, who have a temporary interest in following Jesus, they read their Bibles, they come to church, they call Jesus their Savior, but they think that if they come, they believe that there is something physically to benefit from that. And that becomes their primary reason. They read that Jesus does heal people. He does provide for them. He fixes them. There is some social aspect. And that really is missing the point here. It's not the rights of the people that Matthew is focusing on, but the rights and the crown rights of King Jesus. That is the emphasis. So there are the crowds. Now there's a corollary here. There are those among the crowds that distinguish themselves. 
There are those within the crowds that distinguish themselves because they said, I believe in Jesus, but I believe in Jesus for me. I believe that Jesus can do these things, but now they distinguish themselves and they say, but I believe he can do these things for me. Today there's people sometimes that struggle with the assurance of their salvation and they don't doubt that Jesus can save. They just doubt, did he save me? There are people that doubt about God's promise of provision. I know that God can provide. I know that He says not to worry. But will He provide for me? And the thing that distinguishes these individuals out from the crowd is their faith believing that He will do it for them. That's a good application for us today. To be particular... And believing specifically that Jesus does these things for you. He does these things specifically for those who believe and who express faith. What our Lord really wants is the kind of faith that follows. Genuinely, truly follows. So we have another kind of person that's represented here and these two would-be disciples where the events happened toward the end of Jesus's life but Matthew saw fit to take them and import them and put them here in these two chapters to give us a a model or at least a response of which we should not model but he's drawing our attention to another kind of response that people have and these two stories are there for that reason These are the would-be disciples who approached Jesus in chapter 8, verse 18. One calling him teacher, wanted to be his student. The other calling him Lord, but he had other priorities that he needed to take care of first. And then we have Matthew. And he is that last kind of person And the reason I think these things are grouped together in the fashion that he did. We read about Matthew's own story about Jesus calling him in chapter 9. And actually, Jesus called Matthew before all of these events happened that he gave us in chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. But he puts it in chapter 9. Jesus called Matthew even before the Sermon on the Mount. He highlights the big crowds of people and Jesus taught them and He healed their sick. And the crowds admitted that this man sounds like he has authority. And they even marveled at it. The crowds followed Jesus down the mountain. And then two people came that Matthew inserts from the end of Jesus' earthly ministry up into this point in his gospel. And Matthew, in effect, is saying, let me give you an example of how some people thought and what Jesus said to them. And now if you really want to know what it's supposed to be like, here's what happened to Matthew. Jesus said to Matthew, Follow me. 
And Matthew got up and he followed him. And he meant business about following Jesus. Because he made a really big meal and he invited all of his friends and to meet the master. And Matthew stuck with him to the end. When Matthew ends his gospel, he does so by revealing Jesus' authority. And the Holy Spirit chose Matthew, not Luke, not Mark, not John. He chose Matthew to be the one to pen those words of Jesus when he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples. And in fact, the Holy Spirit is basically saying to Matthew, Matthew, you're right. You were the one who got the message revealed in all those object lessons. And now you pen those words. So kind of in effect, what the Holy Spirit is saying to Matthew, he says, look, in the arrangement of this material, I want you to delay your testimony. First of all, tell them about the crowds. Tell them about those two guys who didn't quite have their priorities completely fixed. And then tell them about yourself. And what the Holy Spirit seems to be doing here is leading us from a very superficial interest in Jesus for very secondary reasons into a completed, sold-out, all-in, committed life unto the Lord of heaven and Jesus Christ. And even in those superficial interests, there were important reasons. Yes, you got to eat. Feeling well and being healthy is important, but it's secondary. And the Holy Spirit wants you and me He wants us to see beyond that. He wants us to see the labor for the meat which does not perish. And look for the bread that comes down from heaven. And what we will look at in these two chapters in the weeks to come, Lord willing, is a powerful challenge administered by our Lord. The Holy Spirit, through this passage, wants us us to collapse everything that we have and everything that we are right on to the Lord Jesus Christ because He is the all-sufficient, all-powerful King who has all authority for every need that you have. And your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sins. And at the end of this section, Matthew says to Jesus, says about Jesus that He saw the multitudes and he was moved because he saw the multitudes were, were weary and they were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that life here, down here? Don't we get weary and laden, weighed down? We have debts to pay. We have health issues and problems. 
We have sins and relational issues. We have worries and concerns. And we just get beaten down with life. And we're like a sheep without a shepherd. And God wants people to see themselves there. That's the whole world this morning. Tormented, exhausted, worn out, and weary. And there is an answer and it is always the same. And it is in the person of this great King, Jesus Christ. Have you heard these things? Have you seen these things? If you've already forgotten what he said back in chapter 6 about worry, about your fears, have you forgotten this great king and who he is? Well, he's going to tell it to us over and over and over again until you get it because he wants you to get it. Jesus can. Jesus can. Jesus can. And He will. He has the authority. Do you believe He will do it for you? Your greatest needs, your greatest and primary needs are to have your sins forgiven. At the bottom of all your fears are your sins. And you need your sins just sent away. He does this for people who are truly serious about following Him. Not just in it for the free food of the perceived material benefits. Not for those who have other priorities they need to tend to first. But for those who truly follow Jesus with their whole heart and life. To those who get up and follow Him. To those people, He says, be of good courage. Your sins are forgiven. I will be with you to the ends of the days. The challenge to us is to read the things that Jesus taught and ask yourself, has anyone ever spoken like this before? And to ask, all these demands He's placed upon my life, all the terrible curse that He's threatened me with, are these things reality or not? And we are supposed to learn from the crowds and learn from the two men and for that model that is put before us in Matthew. And Matthew responded to the Lord and God remedied everything for him. So ask yourself this morning, What manner of man is this? And to decide, you need to decide the degree of allegiance that you are willing to give to Him. God does not bless or empower or entirely relieve stresses for half-following people. This thing works out. Once again, He's asking you just to be all in for Jesus. Lay it all out there. Give Him your life. Give Him your spouse. Give Him your daughter. Give Him your child. Give Him everything. 
that means anything to you and lay it all out there. And should he take it all away, you can say, Lord, be glorified with it. I am following Jesus. I mean, be all in. That's the kind of person that Matthew was. And that's the kind of person Jesus blesses with the abundance of all of these things. He will remedy every one of your needs. And this thing works out just like Matthew said. If you pour your heart into it. And when you do, Jesus is yours. The one who has all authority to make anything happen that he decrees and desires to do. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for King Jesus. For him bringing in this kingdom. And for us, 2,000 years later, living in the light of what he has been doing on this earth for 2,000 years. What he has done for us in our own life and saving us and delivering us out of our sins and sending them away. For promising us we have nothing to fear but God himself. And if we fear him is the beginning of wisdom. We have nothing to worry about if we seek the kingdom and your righteousness first because you're going to provide. We've seen this happen with your other saints of old. We have no reason not to just trust you with everything we have. Lord, we are dull of hearing. And our faith is often small. And our lives filled with doubt. And we're like those sheep oftentimes who are scattered in our spirits weary, heavy laden, and weighed down with the cares of this life. Today, O Lord, we give it all to You. And we call upon King Jesus, and we follow You this day, knowing that You will take care of all of our needs, because You are our Good Shepherd. How thankful for the promises that we have, even the life and the model of Matthew that has been revealed to us, that we can, like him, follow Jesus and know that he will remedy all of the needs that we have in this life and for all of eternity. And we pray that you would drive these truths down into our heart, that we may embrace them and we would forget them. Please remind us over and over again. To the glory of King Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.